Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, thank you, everybody who has been subscribing on Patreon recently. I'm not sure if it's a boost from the Osher Ginsberg podcast that I did or if you've been enjoying reading my blogs on Patreon. Let me know because uh, I'd like to know what to do to make you happy uh, if it is within my scope. Um, if you just want to email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com is the place to do it. Uh, I have gigs coming up in London. If you want to know where, where those are, they're kind of mainly smaller gigs, so I don't want to flood everyone's feed with them. Just follow me on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Admin out of the way. London. I'm in London now. It's a little bit overwhelming to be in a new place again, but it seems to be something that I seek out for myself, that particular struggle, new place, new people, proving myself in that forum. I don't know why I feel... Like that's something that I want in my life, but I've done it enough times that there's a revealed preference there uh, of, of hurling myself in the deep end in a new place. Um, and all of that is leading up to Edinburgh in August. So if you are in Edinburgh in August or you have somebody in Edinburgh in August, send them along to the show, The Resistance. I had a, a trial show of it and just remembered that I hadn't done it for <laughs> a couple of months and that was a bit of a shock to the system. So I'm going to be... Uh, putting the spanner into that show over the next couple of weeks. I'll continue to write my SBS articles, of course, and continue to put these out, but I think knuckling down on my show has got to be my priority. Um, so I might not be on the internet a huge amount, or I might be on it a huge amount procrastinating from the things that I should be doing. Anyway, this week's episode is with Helen Duff, the excellent Helen Duff, who is uh, a clown and an interesting interlocutor. I think you'll enjoy her and the conversation that we had. We were sitting outside a cafe on York Way using my new microphones. Thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers for, for making that possible uh, to do an outdoor podcast that wasn't completely impossible to hear, and, and the sound quality, I think, is good. So thank you for that. Um, keep Keep doing that. And I will talk to you next week. Uh, you're having tea with Alice. So you're saying you were sort of a clown. Oh, yeah. Was I? What do you, do your sister-in-law? Your sister-in-law? Yeah, yes. is that? Um, yes, I'm quite confused about what I am at the moment. Because I've been... Uh, Last night I did a gig. You know how you'd, well, for me anyway, my perspective on myself always depends on what's happened the night before. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I did a podcast with uh, Dan Lees the other day just before London Clown Festival. Yeah. And I'd had, like, an electrically good gig the night before. So I spoke a lot about clowning and how like, freeing and important it was as a process and how, you know, being a clown had really helped me to realize who I was as a person. And now I think, I don't know what the hell I'm doing in terms of, like I did some stuff last night. Half of it was free and kind of happening in the moment. Half of it was stuff I'd done before and was lines effectively, kind of stories, stand up -y yeah. ideas. Thank you, mint tea. Yum. And the half that uh, was just like happened at the beginning because the mic sounded collapsed on top of me and then I made it into like a swan and then I became Bjork at the Oscars. Yeah. 
was so much fun. And then the bit that I suddenly went, like, there must have been a moment where I went, like, oh, I haven't given them anything concrete yet. I haven't done anything that I planned. The five people who've come on before me have been stand-ups. That, you know, I respected, definitely. I didn't love. I didn't really laugh. Um, and I felt sometimes a bit shouted at and thought, oh, I really don't want to be that. Yeah. Mainly because I don't think I can do that. I don't want to be... I think you can do it in credit. There are loads of stand-ups stand that I really like who do it very well. And equally, we were at New Material Night, so you can never really judge people on what's happening there anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so I, there must have been some... So I, there was this kind of gear change. You can always feel it where it kind of went... The clutch crunched. And I started to do like, oh, you, might, you must be thinking, like, why is she dressed like this? Or you must be thinking, what's she here for? And then I started to do this Telling people what bit. they're thinking. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody sort of went, oh, sad. Plus as well, because I, I w spoke very quickly and was in my ideas. That's a phrase that comes a lot from the whole Gollier training. He's, he or she is, is really in her idea, you know? She has this clever, clever thing she wants to present to us that she's thought about beforehand, that she thinks is going to go really so well and we're going to be blown away. And she's so in her idea that actually she doesn't recognize that we're fucking bored. She's not with us. We have no connection to what she's talking about. Just because she thought it would be funny and clever doesn't necessarily mean it is. And as a result of her not actually acknowledging that we're not really on board with it and therefore not adapting and opening it and dropping it if she needs to, to be with us, we hate her. <laughs> That's how he speaks in those really extreme terms because it's quite necessary, I think, to, to like kick you out of your shitty idea, shitty sort of sense of... I know we're going to be talking about some stuff, some like intellectual or theoretical or things that we've been thinking about, but ultimately... Are you trying... Do you, so the he, sort of I don't know. I think he goes a lot into uh, all this intelligence, all of this opinion and ideas and things that we think we need to layer on top of ourselves in order to prove that we're worth something. We don't really need those. Those, those are fun. Those get us out of bed in the morning. If we just maybe went entirely into like, I am enough, we probably wouldn't like leave the duvet. But maybe you would actually, maybe if you came to a full acceptance of I am enough and I would like to get out of bed because I'd want to, because I want to go out inside and see the sky. See, that's really interesting because for me, ideas are the thing. That's the yeah. thing that I, that's the... Oh, I really get off, like I was reading this stuff on Queer Theory yesterday and I was like, I just felt like I was swimming in a sea of electric ideas. It was so enjoyable. Yeah, I like that a lot. And in some ways I feel like, you know, the idea of being enough in yourself is an appealing one, but A, impossible to achieve, mm -hmm. and B, quite flaccid yeah. or disingenuous. That's why I really struggle with the yoga. You know, I was saying I did yoga this morning for the first time in maybe like, I don't know, six months a year. I used to do it a lot. And I was also living with a yoga teacher at one point and somebody who was really into the whole wellness, like self-branding. Lovely people, um, but I've really struggled in that environment to live with them because I think I had this, like, in me, this deep sense of rebellious uh, kind of maybe not hatred but like distrust dislike of the idea that i just need to get to a space where i can just be entirely 
at peace. I just, uh, I it mean, pisses me not, off. I mean, if you, okay, look at the way that we are, um, uh, hack evolutionary biology theory, is, this is what I'm deploying here, but look at the way that we're <laughs> wired. We don't survive because we're happy. Happiness is not really a survival instinct, mm. unless you're suicidally depressed, in which case happiness is useful. But it's not, we don't need to be happy. We want to be happy. We strive to be happy. But all of our gearing says, once you've reached a platform of security or safety that you thought was gonna make you happy, you need the next thing. Yeah, you start to lose your shit, yeah. If you've got enough food, build a house. If you've your got a house, build a big house. Waddle. If you've got a, a house, a big house, then you've got to build a road to another house. Like, that's what is wired into us. And it might not be a good thing, but to pretend that we have the capacity to do anything other than moderate it or take off the sharp edges is stupid and self-indulgent. And you see it manifested in all these really ambitious people who are pretending not to be ambitious. It's also just another form of extreme, isn't it? Just another absolute that is impossible to achieve of kind of absolute peace, complete inner silence, not having any thoughts, disconnecting from the world around you, being an inner pure soul. It's just another form of kind of, I think, beating yourself up about having thoughts or being an impure soul. You're like yeah, sinning, well, I mean, all of this. It's, it's all of the same to, nexus. To strive for, but I feel like a lot of it is, yeah, sort of hypocrisy or virtue signaling, self-indulgence, smug, luxurious is the kind of thing that people mm. who have immense luxury can strive for mm. and pretend that it's something that is egalitarian. You know, they say, oh, well, you know, there's poor people in villages who are happy. <laughs> At the same time as filling the fridge with almond-based products that are probably destroying half California. Yeah, and not voting. That really got to me. Oh, not voting. Nobody in the flat was registered to vote other than me at one point. Ruffle your peace? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a luxurious... Why engage with the political system when the universe will sort it out for you apathy. anyway? Apathy, political apathy is a huge luxury as well. Just the fact that you know... And, it, you know, you can present it as sort of like, well, nothing I do will make a difference anyway. It'll be shit anyway. But what you mean is it'll be shit in a way that is completely tolerable for me. Because if you thought it would actually be shit in a way that threatened your life... True. ...you would be out in the streets with a baseball bat. What you because mean is have like, to instinctually. It'll, be it'll be fine. It'll be shit, but fine. I don't want to care about it because then I'd have to admit that it was complicated and that there are no good answers and that it's always going to be a nasty, messy compromise. Yeah. And I don't want to think about nasty, messy compromises because that makes me upset and sad. That's really interesting that you say that because... I did a, a great workshop with Improbable, who are a theatre company who work uh, politically, and they create a thing called Devoted and Disgruntled. Mm -hmm. It's like um, they kind of have open spaces where you can come, and it's a sort of a debate. And a, I've never actually done one, but we uh, modelled some of their techniques in the workshop I did. And they were talking about, because I was thinking, I worry a lot about talking about issues that don't directly affect me. So, like, both my shows are about things that are really personal to me. Mm. And at the time, I had just been... Before I did this workshop, I'd just been to see a really uh, interesting play. I found it, it engaged me hugely mentally and made me think about lots of different things, and the Q&A afterwards especially, uh, called Loose, which was all about race relations in America, uh, based on this guy who'd been adopted and 
his parents had then kind of turned him into this sort of prodigal son. He'd come from Africa. It was never clarified where exactly, because it was much more about uh, what was happening in these they were very intense spaces, like the schoolroom and the lounge room. And just kind of all of the undercurrents of people's expectations and who, who was defining who by like the relationships that they held with each other mm. uh, and the importance of one person's kind of status and like meaning for the other person's status and meaning. And I'd been really lit up by it and really fascinated by all the stuff it was saying. And I had a great chat afterwards with the guy who played the lead and then went into this improbable workshop, but didn't really feel like I could then bring up some of those topics or those ideas because I was a white woman who is entirely comfortable in terms of like my living situation. And, yeah, and I so think that's one of the dangers of that kind of uh, perspective is that then only the people who are who are oppressed can talk about oppression. And I get that idea of like mistrusting male feminists or whatever, but it's not women who will change the patriarchy. I think that also comes from a place of... Or not women alone. We can, we can ask to change, but a lot of the, the things that we face are not internal. I was thinking about ownership. That sense of I don't trust a male feminist because I feel like he's just getting in on something that he sees as being kind of part of the zeitgeist and he just wants to well, what, own that's it. That's not saying you don't trust a male feminist. No, 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 it means no, you're I'm saying s- you don't trust a wanker. Well, like, no, no, no. As in, I'm saying... I wasn't saying that's an instinct I feel, yeah. necessarily. I'm saying I think the distrust that might arise around a male feminist might come from that sense of, I don't... I suspect you because I think you might just be trying to kind of once again take power over this thing and... And yeah, possess but then it, if, if but I think maybe that fear comes feminist. from maybe that fear comes from a sense of people feeling that issues are actually again. No one uh, has ownership identity. of an issue. Like no one has ownership over the place of women in society, because society is made up of everyone. Yeah. No one has ownership of race relations. They might have more authority to speak on a particular topic or from a particular angle, but. You know, the, the way that society treats people of colour is as relevant to me as a person not of colour because I'm part of that society. And that... F- so the to, to recuse myself from the discussion is... And the barrier that comes about... The barrier that rises up about talking about things comes from fear. So what I was trying to finish there in terms of the possession of the male feminist, possibly, if there was a fear around that, would be coming from a place of... I'm afraid that you're going to take this one thing, this thing that's mine, this thing that I think is really important to me, feminism, is... This is me voicing, I don't know, some... Yeah, yeah, I don't know, yeah. some angry person. Uh, Sorry, we're doing a podcast. Uh, <laughs> that was weird. Um, yeah, us, this, this is a problem because you can talk and talk and talk and then you get interrupted by like real life and you go like, this is a bit bullshit what we're saying. Not bullshit, but it's all very, you know, heady. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not gonna give that man money. He was screaming outside my window last night. Really? Yeah. For what? Just, no, just screaming. Just having a scream. Just having a bit of a scream. Yeah. I think it comes back to fear, ultimately. Like a, a fear of not 
not being enough on your own, like a sense of, I think that's what I want, you know how you said to me, have you got anything you want to talk about? Uh, how you find value and how you, entitlement. Yeah. And being comfortable with what you have. Yeah. And uh, allowing. So do you want to be entitled or do you want to not be entitled? Well, I think, oh, because if you're entitled with that question and you don't realize you are, that's quite dangerous because then you take it for granted and don't realize that other people, I don't know. I don't know because then if you introduce doubt into a person, why introduce doubt into a person's life about their situation, which might undermine them? But if you're sufficient into your, in yourself, then what is your responsibility to other people? I mean, this idea that you can exist without a network is, again, I'm going to say it's kind of the pattern of my discussion is luxury. Mm. Just going, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm enough. I don't need anyone else to help me and I don't need to help anyone else. And actually asking for help or allowing yourself to put yourself on the line for somebody else is quite a vulnerable thing to do. Yeah, and, and even... Again, like this idea that asking, allowing yourself to ask for help or putting yourself on the line for someone else, those are all these ideas where you're, you're an autonomous unit. You're not dependent on other people and other people aren't dependent on you. Where does duty fit into that? Where does responsibility fit into that? Where do the, the pressures of, of having to help other people or needing help from other people? Mm. It's, it's either... But that becomes a moral thing then. It's either a lie or you're a completely isolated individual and then you're just... Asking for help is an act of benevolence or self-care rather than, I need help, you know? I'm confused. Are you saying that it, duty and responsibility do exist or don't? I'm saying that they can exist. I'm saying that our society sort of seems to sideline those things in many ways. Or yeah. present them as choices or options that you can choose to have responsibilities to other people or not. You can choose to just be on your own and that, you know, if, you, if it's not the best for you, then you should leave your family and if it's not the best for you, then you should find someone else to love and all of those things are really appealing and I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm saying that they seem to be going without question at the moment. Well, they're actually quite terrifying though, aren't they? Because often, and we don't like to admit it, but if you stick at something that's uncomfortable and that you think you don't enjoy or want to be a part of, you'll pass through that stage and realise, actually, no, I can. This is fine. It's great. Yeah. Like with staying with your family or, yeah, being in a relationship that you think is difficult or in a job that you think is... Which is, you know, again, not to say that I think that it's necessarily the wrong choice. I know there's certainly circumstances where people who are miserable have left and become happier. Um, in certain circumstances, it's necessary. In certain circumstances where there's, like, really abusive situations, it's preferable mm. and you want to help people to leave and so any rhetoric that helps that happen I'm for but I think it sort of goes without question so much of like well I didn't love her anymore so I left I find that quite tricky as an idea because my parents split up when I was quite young and that was exactly the situation and now my mum is so happy with the person she's married to now Yeah, and I love my stepdad and actually it's allowed me a real to have lots of different influences on my life 
But at the same time, I think that's what I was talking about in terms of entitlement. It does, that having that experience quite early on takes away your sense of automatically expecting to be loved and to be safe. Yeah. Which then... I, th I mean, love is inherently untrustworthy. I don't think the because act of love is untrustworthy, but well, you don't expect to be. if somebody loves you, then you go, well, when will they stop? <laughs> right? And, and, and I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't... This is not something that I've... You know, this is what this podcast is for, is for talking about things that I'm not 100% sure Good. of my opinion on. Like, yeah. I actually don't know what the right thing is, and I don't know if the way that our society is moving is better or worse. I know that in... Like, there's a certainly a revealed preference in it, in that the more wealthy a, a society becomes, the more it tends to start to look like our society... Uh, at least on the upper echelons, the richer people are, the more they tend towards individual autonomy and individual self-indulgence. Yes, yes. The more, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It just means it feels better. Certainly, that follows a, a paradigm of the old benevolent. Aristocrat and his manor yeah. would be served by the community because he funds the community. He owns the fields. He pays the wages. Mm. Uh, they would have a, a much greater sense of connectedness. He would need to be isolated in order to keep his sense of status and yeah. propriety and therefore be at one remove. So... And yes, I guess the way that he then, and this is hugely stereotypical, but the way that he then feeds his happiness is to drink a lot of wine, eat a lot of food, and survey his, his wealth, right? Survey his land. Feel the, feel the joy of possession. Exactly. And that's something I find uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, I think I really struggle with that because I feel as if that's something I, I that's a model I aspire towards, the model of possession, the idea that, and I think a lot of people have this, um, I should be working as hard as I can to be able to make as much money as I can in order to buy all the things that everybody else wants and desires and that will make me feel as if I have succeeded. To go on nice holidays in plush hotels where I will be served by somebody else and drink alcohol, right? But actually, the reality of that is I get very bored very quickly because I've done, like, my dad has that lifestyle and that's definitely what he has geared his whole working well, life towards. That's my model on his side. And uh, I get very bored in these hotels. I react quite badly to alcohol. I don't enjoy drinking that much. And I, um, I, don't, I don't feel very comfortable with people serving me all the time. I don't mind. I've been a waitress, so it's not like I feel as if, you know, I understand that it's somebody's job. But I would much rather go the route of, and I think I quite, probably quite uh, dangerously, not dangerously, that suggests as a, a real threat, but quite unhelpfully make it into two camps where I go like, that's my dad's life and then my mum's life. My stepdad is more community-based, more, my mum is an artist and she was a textiles teacher. She makes a lot of her own, she makes all the costumes for my show. Oh, that's amazing. My stepdad runs the village fate. They're very engaged with like, the church, which is basically just like the village, and uh, we would 
rather go on a picnic in which we've made all the food and play games and maybe go fishing down at the river in Oxfordshire than, like, I don't know, go abroad. So I have these two different... Yeah, different and sort I of get, forms. I and I find the homemade version much more satisfying and fulfilling. See. And it is not about possession or status or wealth. And that's the idea, though. But the idea, I think, is that if you get enough wealth, then you can choose the homemade version. Mm-hmm. As though... Yeah, because I felt the need to clarify there that absolutely my stepdad is in a very comfortable position. Uh, yeah, so neither, no, neither of those things that I've just described are in any way, yeah, struggling. So, but then I think, yeah, I think about that and then I think about the way that I run my life because when I have no money, mm. I am fine. I do things within my means. I always push to the edge of my resources and I'll spend money on making things happen that are the things that I'm interested in. So the, the things that I write or the, you know, I'll buy myself time to write something. Mm. And then when I have more money, I spend it on those things as well. So you're really investing in the things that creatively so satisfy that, you. It means that the needs that I have when I'm poor are never more pressing than the things that I'm already pursuing. So, like, I don't need to go to the LA Podcast Festival. Yes. But I also don't need to buy a pair of jeans. And if True. I have the money and I have the option, I'll go to where the ideas are rather than where the jeans are. So you're very good at clarifying what you want and what you need, whereas I'm not sure... I can see the things that make me happier, but I'm not... But I feel like I'm really socially conditioned to not focus on those. Yeah, the jeans, the jeans thing is quite a, like, a, a recent example because it was that thing where I was sitting in front of my laptop sewing a patch onto my jeans mm. and putting down money towards these flights. And it was a very clear example of my priorities. Yeah, but also, like, sewing a patch on your jeans, those jeans probably look great. That's a real problem, isn't it? I know people have talked about this a lot, but that we don't reuse and remake things. Yeah, there's the idea of circular economies. I was talking to a really interesting guy the other day that I did this charity gig. Uh, it was an insane thing. I'm just going to boast slightly. Um, Go for it. So my, Tiff Stevenson, who's been like my guardian angel since I arrived here, mm. she's just got me gigs and been really nice and really generous with her time and energy and like opportunities. Mm. And I have just sort of confused but like slightly like you know that kind of thing where, where there's a, a, a duck feeding from your hand and you don't want to move? Like something really delightful is happening yes. and I don't want to ruin it and I don't know why it's happening, but it's yes. amazing that she's being so... You don't trust the love. Generous, yeah. <laughs> <trust> the love. <laughs> uh, and um, the point is that she texted me the other day and she said, I'm doing this charity gig. Stuart Lee just dropped out. Do you want to do the gig? Wow. So I said, yes, obviously I, I did. It was, you know, unpaid gig, a beautiful venue and for uh, a sustainable farming thing, which is why it came to mind, uh, this local community farm where they're trying to make, you know, the circular economy happen, where there's, there's very little input, very little waste, everything moves around in a, yeah. an alternative to the capitalist growth hypothesis, mm. that you can have these sustainable economies that are worthy because of their sustainability rather than because of their growth. Uh, but, yeah, just that idea. And obviously it was on the day on a Friday night, very few comedians would have been free. 
But for me, I get to go for the rest of my life knowing that I was at one point a one-for-one direct replacement for Stuart Lee. Amazing. <laughs> I gigged after him. I had to follow him. He, used to, he opened the night because he then had to go and do a charity gig. Mm. And it was so terrifying. Thank God he left. He didn't watch my set. But I spent the entire time just because of the clowning aspect of what I do, pretending to be a sacrificial lamb and then, like... Because, essentially, I'd been, like, thrown on the heap in order to then clear the way for the next five comics who didn't want to follow Stuart Lee because I turned up the last. And they were like, Helen, you're on after Stuart, so just get ready. I was like, sure. Well, also, don't they say second in the lineup is the... <laughs> yeah, normally, but not after Stuart Lee's just on 20 minutes. Yeah, man. And the entire audience has come to see him, and they are all going to leave in the interval. Oh, man, that's brutal. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, you don't want to be the person after the interval, first up after that interval. True, true, yeah. That's the worst one. Yeah. Because it's an anticlimax all the way to the bank from there. And again, I think I felt a bit guilty about doing... I felt guilty that night about just doing, like, uh, off-the-cuff what's happening in the room stuff. But actually, people said, no, like, you did exactly the right thing if you tried to do your material. And, well, like, if you're putting your material up against Stuart exactly, Lee's material. Exactly that, yeah. And I find that is one of, the re- one of my motivators in deciding what I'm going to talk about or what I'm going to do comedy about is uh-huh. making it as distinctly myself as possible. True, yeah. As close to my own way of thinking, my own way of articulating things as is possible while making it possible to communicate it to another human being. Yes. Like, it can't just be like, sit in my brain for five minutes. You actually have to try yeah. and communicate. But if you can communicate something that's distinct and unique, you can't be compared to somebody else? Ultimately, yes. I think uh, you're never going to be original material-wise. Like, yeah. uh, so it has to be about form, doesn't it? It has, it has to, be, to about be about how you present it and how it, what voice, angle you come as from. They say, which exactly. is kind of a bit cliched, but... Yeah. As a term, but that's because it's useful, so screw it. Um, yeah, that if you say it in your way, then people can't say, oh, Alice is better than Helen. Mm. All, they, all they can say is, I prefer Helen to Alice, or Alice to Helen, and it's a matter of taste. You can't say... I mean, you can say, and people do say, but they can't mean it, really. They can't say, blueberries are better than almonds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, I mean, you, that's the way you say it, but what you mean is I prefer blueberries to yeah, almonds. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what you want to be. You want to be so distinctly yourself. And I wouldn't be able to say I do or I don't. They're such different tastes. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like blueberries and sometimes I feel like almonds. Exactly, and, yeah. But what you don't want to be... And maybe if you've had too many almonds, yeah. you'd fancy some blueberries. Yeah, what you don't want to be is blanched almonds to somebody else's straight almonds in a lineup. You don't want to be... Ex- yeah. And I feel sorry for... Slightly older I didn't, I didn't choose to do what I do the way that I do it because it's weird and different. But I certainly sometimes feel the advantage of that, for sure. Yeah. Of being a, a, a big weirdo. Because I'm not even thing. a weirdo, just like distinctive. In and a night where people will go, yeah, that. we've already got too many almonds. Yeah. And, and, and what do we need? We need something to, you know, spice up this trail mix. This is an, a very extended metaphor, <laughs> but I'm going with it. The, almonds, <laughs> the blanched almonds are, are straight white male stand-ups, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. They are 100% that. And I feel like, I feel for those guys. I really do. Yeah. Except I that... I know, poor them. Except that the oppression that they feel is still in the context of them dominating most of everything. Crimey River, yeah. Like they, it's, 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 
it's less that they get less opportunity than that people will occasionally be like, you know you get a lot of opportunity when they're getting the opportunity and then they're meant to feel a bit guilty about it and that's what they resent. Guy told an interesting joke last... Well, maybe it wasn't interesting, maybe that was the... I, I don't want to critique at all somebody else's material, but the reaction at the end of it was interesting because it was about a cut on his scrotum Whoa. and how he had then... And he tried to seal it and then... He'd ended up bleeding and he'd realised that his pants were full of blood in a public space. And then he was, and you know, the horror of that. And, and he then did acknowledge, you know, is this what it's like for every 15, 16-year-old girl? And uh, because it was just so, like, yes. The answer to that question is yes. yes. It wasn't funny or particularly uh, surprising or insightful because it just was like... It's, in, it's interesting to watch you talk about something that you think because you're coming it from the angle of a, a, a man and because you're like trying to deal with like a woman's issue, maybe. I don't know. It's uh, interesting, yeah. You thought that would be like a left field, but actually what it's like saying butter melts on toast for women. It's like... It's also saying this issue has been invisible to me my whole life. Yes, Exactly. Let's and I think he was acknowledging that, now. though. I think he yeah. was definitely acknowledging that. But in a way, it was like, yes, mate. <laughs> All we can say is yes, yes. And it's sort of a shame that you couldn't think about it before. or Yeah. And maybe know. even realise that actually it wasn't even enough worth saying. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one. Actually, uh, I don't know if you left. There was an open mic gig in that bus uh, that you did. You opened the night in your beautiful blue jumpsuit. I had to leave because... My cousin and I were supposed to be having dinner. You know when you start to make like actual arrangements you normally, you ordinarily wouldn't? I'd done that a lot that week and I felt very guilty because I was like, gigs, I like gigs. Uh, I like people, but I, I actually sometimes prefer gigs. And my cousin is, I, I love her, so I really wanted to see her. So I got asked to do that gig 10 minutes before because it was really close to my house and I tried to do both. So as a result, yeah, I had to leave halfway through and I would like to have stayed because I love that space. I thought it was a really it's nice... a really nice space and they're atmosphere really nice and audience. MCs, those boys. Great um, community. That's, that, I think that whole festival, London Clown Festival, is a really good example of uh, building something, making something that is really accessible because tickets are £5 and actually pay what you can if you can't even get to the £5. And also, a lot of people have mucked in to make it happen. Yeah, I like that. But the, the point was that there was a guy there, and I like him, and he was, he was doing new material. Mm. And so I spoke to him afterwards, and he asked me if I had any thoughts. So this is not me offering unsolicited mm. uh, feedback. Uh, in fact, I was there with his director, so I said it to his director rather than directly to him because we didn't know each other very well. But he got up and he talked about how he has a television show and he doesn't look like the kind of guy who gets a television show. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, they've brought in somebody more famous to head it up. It's a very successful live thing that they've been doing for a while. They've got it up on television, but as happens when you put something up on television, they want a safe bet, so they get a host who has sure. a lot of profile. Right. And so he got up, and he's, what, what 20, well, maybe 33, and he's sort of slightly... Slightly clunky looking, a little bit nerdy looking. <laughs> clunky looking. But he is, he is. A real clunker. <laughs> and as I said to him, I said, you know, it's, you are correct on one, on one vector. You are, you know, like you're not your classic sort of matinee idol. I love how you've gone into like 
geometry speak. Yeah. Vector, clunky. Well, you know, you're not, you know, the matinee idol. You're not Zac Efron, et cetera, et cetera. But you are a young white man. And there are a lot of young white men on television. So you have to, if you want to get away with that joke, you have to acknowledge that because otherwise there'll be a certain segment of the audience who are, you know, either genuinely upset by it or looking to prove their social conscience by telling you that you are in at least one very significant way exactly like most people on television. By just not giving you the laugh, essentially. Yeah, or yeah. they will withdraw the laugh or they'll tell you afterwards or they'll heckle you. Mm. But you need to, you need to highlight, you know, like you can't just say that. Yeah, interestingly, the, I wasn't, because um, I had a detachment from that because it's like outside of my, like, the thing that happened with the blood in the pants, it was outside of my, I wouldn't have, I'm not going to be a, a white male doing that. So it doesn't, it didn't affect me directly. But then another uh, a girl that I know, got up and did something about waxing and it was very different to the way that I have approached that same sort of material yeah. but then I immediately thought in my mind I'm not doing anything on waxing and maybe I should never do that waxing material again because I thought to myself oh this is just a thing that people do no and yeah. so I get really I get really like I get the same I'm, I do oh, I have no I'm just a cliched like, creep I don't want to be talking about this I can't like but it's a thing that happened and I have to talk about like I have a waxing story that's particularly that ah. of like when it happened, I thought, oh, no, now I have to talk about this on stage. Uh -huh. Because I didn't want to talk about that on stage because you don't want to be that kind, quote, unquote, that kind of comedian, yeah. which is to say any other comedian than yourself. Exactly. And the moment you start talking about things that other people are talking about. Yes. Or especially talking about things that you think are associated with women and female comedians. Uh, have to talk about their but vaginas. Again, like... Yeah, this experiential thing. I think it's because if you're talking about a shared experience, you can talk about it in a unique way, but there has to be some scene setting that is in itself sort of cliched or just to bring everyone into the experience, you have to describe the experience. And that in itself cannot be original, really. With that in mind, um, the sense of, oh, I don't want to do that stuff because I think it's everyone's going to groan and think, oh, here she goes, another woman speaking about her bits. Um, that sort of internalised sense of I shouldn't do this thing because everybody expects me to do this thing and it's associated with uh, women and I don't want to be seen as a woman. Uh, or no, I, not that I don't want to be seen as a woman, I don't want to be seen as that kind of woman. Do you think it's actually important to then push through that self-cringe, that self like, I don't want to do this because that's what we expect, and go, that's why I should do it. I should speak about it because I've had that reaction and actually nobody has the right to make me feel as if the things that happen to me or that are on my mind today or that I think could possibly be funny, I shouldn't talk about because... They've been over because they expect me to, you know. Oh God! Yeah, well, given it's like that, a given that never-ending uh, Fifty-one percent of the population, you know, vagina jokes are slightly more relatable than penis jokes. <laughs> if you're looking at pure numbers. Yeah. But I don't know. I, Sorry. I, I no, that's fine. I don't know what the answer is. I know that when with my waxing joke, I push through and I make it. Yeah. Like I do an act out to the level of like making the discomfort present in my physical like I lie down on the stage and assume waxing pose oh yeah I mean I've become a vagina in come with me 
I'm not saying I don't, you know, I avoid it at all costs. I've really gone all the way. Become a vagina, spoken as my vagina, but recreated a female thing, ejaculation in the, workshop. In the same way as people who do skydiving, mm. I think they do it as, in many ways, a manifestation of a fear of death is you get as close to death as possible mm. and you don't die and then you feel like you've won against your fear. Yes. I think it's that of like, I don't want to talk about these issues. I don't want to be that kind of comedian. Yes. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to make it Absolutely, work. that driving sense of risk. I'm and going to do it in a way that is so close to alienation and yet brings you back in. Yeah, true. And I think I struggled to find, oh, this isn't supposed to be a podcast about us making shows, is it? But I struggled to fight for the next show. I'm always trying to do two shows at once, which is stupid. Struggle to find the something that of felt like to never be happy with what you exactly. have, Helen Duff. Felt like a, a risk. Felt like um, something that I was uncomfortable or scared to talk about. Because um, I've done two shows now where I've done huge things that I was really uncomfortable about, and they've been really helpful in making me less uncomfortable about them. Like what? What were the two things? Just for the audience. Oh, the first one was about anorexia, uh, but done as a. See, I immediately feel the need to clarify so that nobody thinks I just did a lecture. Because um, I've seen those shows and the TED Talk they're shows. just terrible uh, for me personally. Um, I did it as a cookery show as a character called Jill Grandage, who was uh, fabulous. She's my she was my sort of my clown. It's, that's kind of developed now as I've become more comfortable on stage. I think. Um, and so I made a cheesecake live on stage and it, it flitted from story to like live cookery show demonstration where she was creating the pilot for her new kind of cookery career on TV. Very silly, but also quite surprising. And, and only at the end did I kind of come out of it and say hello as Helen. Um, and then the second show, the one that I'm doing this year at Edinburgh, that I like worked in progress last year, it's called Come With Me. And that's about, I've never had an orgasm. So I dress as a sperm and we go on a quest to have an orgasm as an audience. So it gets very messy. Um, <laughs> But again, yeah, so it's all, it's all, the form is really important, I guess, in terms of my work, because on paper, that sounds like, on paper, that sounds Edit really point. confronting. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I hopefully, because of the clowning and the connection and the stupidity, it's actually quite a liberating way to look at something that might make people feel deeply uncomfortable and ashamed. I think that's what I'm really interested in is shame and how it becomes uh, wrapped up in belief and morals. Have you morals heard about and, that, uh, yeah. whatever, Emma, what's her name, the Harry Potter girl? Emma Watson, Watson yeah. yeah. Uh, she has done an app that's like... Oh, yeah, about she hasn't vagina. made it. No, no, she just supports it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, she just shouted it out, I think. Uh, yeah, I went on it and had a look. It is full on. It's called OMG Yes, and you can um, virtually... Uh, recreate your vagina so you like scan it I don't know I think maybe in the same way as like you know when you do um, thumbprints on your yeah. iPhone to you set up the security iPhone. code I don't know how it works but they I imagine that you take a lot of photos at lots of different angles yeah and then you can stimulate your vagina on screen yeah. so you can like play with it and try and bring it to orgasm now the thing I haven't done that I just watched this like um, tutorial of a woman masturbating and it was really interesting to watch because I don't think I'd seen somebody do that in such a kind of open and uh, non-sexual, non-pornographic way. It was great, actually, to see. And, uh, yeah, but the stimulating... The thing that worried about me about that was 
if I brought my virtual vagina to orgasm and... And then couldn't do and it then on your couldn't real do it self. to my own. Vag- I would just once again be creating a kind of like um, example for my own vagina to feel like it wasn't living up to the expectations. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, why can't like tapping the screen? Look, they look at this one. Look at this one having the time of its life. What's wrong with you? <laughs> that sounds like a serious uh, level of worry. That's like a level of what's that film that Joaquin Phoenix was in? I haven't seen it. Where he has like a virtual. Uh, it's like a clone dilemma almost. Exactly. He like has like a woman. Built a clone that was like he has you, a woman he falls in you, love with. He's his like at, like a Siri. Yeah. That film. Uh, with Scarlett Johansson being the voice. Exactly. Where he falls in love with her. Something like. Anyway, it would be like that but with your own vagina is what I imagine. So I didn't do it. I thought it would create a potentially dangerous relationship with the screen. That <laughs> is already, you know, we already have quite dangerous relationships with screens anyway. Yeah, and you don't want to be feeling vagina envy of. Exactly. Oh, terrible. Terrible. Oh, that's... Uh, where can people find you online? Oh, HelenDuff.com, yep. which is still like the third... If you Google Helen Duff, it's like on the third page of Google. Because Vanity Bites Back, which is my first show for a year and a half, was my only website, HelenDuff.com still hasn't... I need to work out how to make that. Well, so go online and click, and we'll boost it up the rankings. Exactly, get a uh, clicking. And are you on Twitter as well? Yes, at DuffMarvel. Duff Marvel is good. And is there anything that you would like people who are listening to say or do in their lives more? Um, be less ashamed. So if you have something you're ashamed about, like, I don't know. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible. Immediately my mind goes to shitting your pants. Then <laughs> be more open about it. Maybe that's the one that you maybe shouldn't. Well, there are I some don't things know. you should be ashamed of. But that's I a cripplingly powerful and useful social embarrassed. Yeah, you shouldn't show that to anyone, maybe. I don't know. I should have picked a different example. Probably like having a spot on your face. Mm. Don't feel like you then can't go out the house. Mm. Just walk out and Just show that person. spot off. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone just be a little bit more comfortable being a bit shitter. Or share something. Like, talk about something you're ashamed about. Maybe talk about if you did accidentally shit your pants. Talk, tell someone. It'll be funny. The person will find it really funny. There is I nothing guarantee. funnier. Unless maybe it's a librarian that you don't know. That could potentially be quite awkward. I feel like it would be a bonding experience. It, I feel yeah. librarians have seen a lot worse. Even that. I think the library would light up their day. Otherwise, like, what are they doing? Silence. Sorting yeah. books You've all got day. All of their conversations for the next week sorted. A lady came up exactly. to me at work today and told me that she'd done a poo in her pants. Exactly, in the Jane Austen <laughs> aisle. <laughs> Out of nowhere. It was an, it was an enlightening uh, human experience. Yes, community, connection. Thank we you. depend on other people. So much. I will see you all over the place and definitely in Edinburgh. What time's your shows? Come with me is at 5.45 at the Pleasance Courtyard. Cool. And, uh, for the whole run. My show's 8.15 at, at the uh, Gilded Balloon, so people can go and see... Glory choice. What is, what's your show other? called? The Resistance. Lovely.